Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous supporters. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash donate. You're listening to Episode 4 of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries, both natural and supernatural, anything that's strange, odd, or makes you wonder, the claims and counterclaims from the perspectives of both faith and reason. And in this episode, we're talking about Area 51. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today, as always, is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. So Area 51, uh, what is it? What's the claims that we have about Area 51? Well, the claim is that Southern Nevada is the home of a secret military base called Area 51, among other things. It's also called Groom Lake and Dreamland and has several other names as well, names and nicknames as well. Um, This base is claimed to be a site where the U.S. government develops and tests secret aircraft and weapon systems. Um, It also is uh, allegedly a place where alien, meaning extraterrestrial craft, have been reverse engineered, such as uh, the flying saucer that allegedly crashed at Roswell, New Mexico. And it's also claimed that uh, it that alien bodies have been housed there and even live extraterrestrials have been housed there. Wow. So uh, it's sort of a a range of claims from the more mundane to the fantastical. Uh, So what's... What's the counterclaim? What do the skeptics say about Area 51? Well, there's sort of two varieties. Um, the For a long time, some people would say, oh, there is no such place. Particularly government employees might say that kind of thing. <laughs> um, however, uh, in recent times, uh, the existence of the base has been confirmed. So we do know there is an Area 51. Um, but today the claim would be that there's never been anything extraterrestrial there. It's just a site for um, for developing and testing uh, military craft and weapon systems. So so what is it we know? So what, 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 uh, what can we... Um... What's been established uh, as fact around Area 51? Well, rather a lot, in, uh, because in recent years, a lot of the programs that were uh, worked on at Area 51, at least in prior decades, have now been declassified. And as a result of that, various witnesses have talked about them. And there are different accounts that they've given uh, that you can read. There's a, in particular, now there's a lot, been a lot of books about Area 51, and a lot of them are, you know, kind of fringe books and they're not real reliable. But there's a, one book in particular I'd recommend called Area 51 by a journalist named Annie Jacobson. And there will be a link to it in the show notes. And her book is, there is an issue that we'll talk about regarding her book, but in general, her book is quite reliable. She talked to all these guys in their 70s and 80s who you know worked there and could be verified as having worked there from declassified files. And so she really got to the heart of a lot of what went on at Area 51. Basically, and some of this is, you know, this is not just from her book, but from other sources too, um, Groom Lake which is where which is located in area 51 
is a salt flat. It's a dry lake bed um, in the Nevada desert, and that makes it a kind of natural landing strip for airplanes. It's about 80 miles north of Los of Las Vegas, and it's surrounded by lead and silver mines that were active in the 1800s and even that continue to be active even after Area 51 got built. In fact, um, on the, uh, I believe it's the northeast uh, or northwest uh, border of Area 51, there's this family that had mining claims there that uh, and and they'd come in periodically and do some stuff in their minds, and it r- really caused some tension with the government people in Area 51 who didn't like these civilians being so close, but couldn't get them legally evicted by the courts. <laughs> and um, so in in uh, so mining is one of the activities in this area. Um, in 1942, the Army Air Corps which is what it was called at the time because it had not yet been split off to become the Air Force. Uh, The Army Air Corps established a pair of runways on the Groom Lake Salt Flat, and uh, they did some like bombing range kind of testing during World War II. In 1950, President Truman established a region right next to what's now Area 51 called the Nevada Test Site. And the Nevada Test Site is... Uh, where they did a lot of atomic bomb testing in the 1950s and afterwards. Um, they detonated literally hundreds of bombs there, like seven or 800, uh, most of them underground. But this is where a lot of the nuclear testing in the 50s and afterwards occurred. Um, area that, Incidentally, um, the Nevada test site is divided into numbered areas. So there's Area 1, Area 2, Area 15, Area 22, and so forth. Um, The reason that Area 51 is called Area 51 is not entirely clear. Um, It is right next to Area 15. And so some people have thought it's just the inversion of that. Other people have noted that the numbered areas in the Nevada test site don't go up to 51. And so it could have been picked as a number that the Atomic Energy Commission was unlikely to use. It was much higher or notably higher than the other numbers. It could be both of those reasons. Um, But in any event, in 1955, the Air Force established a base at Groom Lake that is now known as colloquially, at least as Area 51. Um, and it was indeed, and it presumably still is used as a site for developing um, aircraft and uh, weapon systems for military purposes. And uh, like you said, it's been known by a number of names over the years. Uh, you said Groom Lake, uh, another name that's popped up as Dreamland, some other mm-hmm. names like that. Um, yeah. So what kind of what kind of planes uh, do we know have been developed there? Um, a number of uh, different weapon systems or different planes that have become very famous were developed there. Um, and many of these had not just military purposes, but also espionage purposes. In fact, there's been kind of a tug of war between the Air Force and the CIA over Area 51 and it, and controlling it. And in some cases, um, a weapon system or an aircraft system would be developed by the CIA 
with their funding for espionage purposes. And then the Air Force would kind of take it over. And that has led to some tension between the two groups. One of the earliest and most famous systems that was developed there in the 1950s was the U-2 spy plane. And uh, this was one, uh, for people who may not be familiar, this vehicle was used to do overflights of the Soviet Union. And it could fly very high and very fast and theoretically out of the reach of artillery um, and missiles and and ways that the Soviets could kind of bring it down. And so um, in President Eisenhower's administration, he authorized the overflight of the Soviet Union a number of times using the U-2 spy plane. And this was an example of a kind of tug of war between the Air Force and the CIA, um, the Air Force had the attitude that if it's if it's got wings, it's under our jurisdiction. We should be doing these overflights. But um, President Eisenhower was convinced by the argument that if one of these things crashes or gets shot down and the pilot is wearing an Air Force uniform, it will be construed as a military act of war, whereas if it's a civilian and he's a spy rather than a military officer, we can handle this through the rubric of the espionage that goes on all the time, and we can have spy trades and things like that. And so when Francis Gary Powers was shot down, he was a civilian employee of the Central Intelligence Agency, and he eventually was exchanged back for a Soviet spy. Okay. And so the the planes that were developed there were the most advanced aircraft we had using the right. most advanced technologies. I mean, the fact that we went from propeller planes at, in the mid 40s to something like the U-2 spy plane flying at the edge of space almost, or the, even other mm-hmm. ones like the, the ox cart, which was the precursor to the SR-71 Blackbird. Right. I want to talk about the ox yeah, cart. That yeah. We went to these you know, to, to, from the technology advance was so great in this short span of time, and these were the cutting edge of technology. And I wonder, you know, if this is do do some of the theories about how we advance so quickly have to do with the fact that they think that the technology for these planes came from alien spacecraft? Oh yeah, that's 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 one of the claims that's out there in the UFO literature. In fact, there's a book, and I don't recommend this book, and except as fiction, um, although it's not meant to be fiction. It's called The Day After Roswell, and it's by uh, a military officer named uh, Corso, uh, who claimed near his death that his one of his jobs was to take technology that had been reverse engineered from UFOs and seed it in the commercial sector and that the uh, the transistor was one of the things that that this happened with. Um, the same claim is going to be uh, made regarding various aircraft that were developed at Area 51. Um, you mentioned propeller planes in the 40s, and there's actually a great story in Annie Jacobson's book, one of many great stories, about uh, that because jets were developed in the 40s. They were they were not common, but and everyone was used to propeller planes. And uh, in 1942, this was not in Area 51 because it hadn't been established yet. But in 1942, they were they had a hunk of airspace in the Mojave Desert in California where they were testing some of the first jets. 
and obviously they were classified and you had people uh, who were pilots in neighboring ranges who would just accidentally stray over and try to take a look at what was being developed. And so one of the uh, and up to a certain point, the uh, Army Air Corps had been putting fake propellers on the jets they were testing to try to make them look like normal planes so they wouldn't be considered too revolutionary. <laughs> but this one pilot, I forget his name, got the idea of let's go in completely the other direction. And so he took the propeller off of his jet and wore a gorilla mask that he'd ordered from a Hollywood costumer. And then when a neighboring plane comes in to get a look at what's being developed, he sees this propellerless plane being flown by a gorilla and then immediately upon landing, like goes to a pilot bar and starts talking about this. And everyone's going, oh, you're drunk. You're crazy. Go home. Uh, you're embarrassing yourself. And then other pilots started doing this, doing the jet testing, started doing the same thing. And according to one version of the story, like the head army psychiatrist got involved and is telling them about, you know, at altitude, you can become disoriented and see things that you think are real, but that aren't actually real, like propellerless planes being flown <laughs> by gorillas. <laughs> and that's uh, that's probably like in the Mojave Desert, that's probably Edwards Air Force Base, which is a, yes. a different base from what we talk about Area 51. Edwards Air Force oh, Base yeah. is well known and public. Right. But uh, Area 51 is considered a remote satellite branch of Edwards. Okay. And so uh, you uh, you mentioned that you want to talk about Oxcart in the SR-71. Yeah. yeah. So the Oxcart is another one of these vehicles that was developed by the CIA. It's It was designed to be the first Mach 3 plane. So it could travel three times the speed of sound. And they had to do bunches of testing and iteration to get it up to that level. But they eventually did. And it became uh, the basis of several other systems that uh, we're familiar with today in one way or another. Um, you've, uh, The listener, you've probably heard of the SR-71 Blackbird. And the that's essentially a military version of the ox cart. The ox cart, which I love the irony of that name. Yes. You know, I mean, it's <laughs> ox carts being famously slow vehicles. And so this yes. one travels Mach 3. Um, it also traveled much higher uh, than other aircraft would at the time. And it was about five times faster than commercial aircraft could fly. Um, and they would use it for espionage purposes like overflights of China and things like that um, in the 1960s. So this is kind of the successor to the U-2. Well, um, then they, the Air Force said, we want a version of this that we can use for reconnaissance and attack purposes. In particular, we want to be able to use it in the wake of a nuclear attack. So like if we've bombed a place, we want to be able to send in one of your super fast, super high planes and do reconnaissance to see have we missed any important targets. And if we do, we want to be able to strike them. So we want a reconnaissance and strike plane. And we're going to call it a blackbird, a bird because it flies and black because the original version was a black program. It was developed in secret. And so that would have given us the RS for reconnaissance and strike 
the RS-71 Blackbird, except Lyndon Johnson got dyslexic in publicly announcing it and called it the SR-71 Blackbird. <laughs> and because the military doesn't like to correct the commander-in-chief, they changed the name to RS-71 Blackbird, even though the reconnaissance really should come before the strike. Right. <laughs> yeah, the first letter is usually a modification. Uh, I mean, the second letter is usually a modification of the first letter. Uh, and so it should be primarily a reconnaissance and secondarily strike. But yeah. Also, you want to scope out an area before you start striking. <laughs> exactly. It. There's just a kind of a logical sequence there. There's a there's a the, the SR-71, like a lot of these, started out as a secret plane. Then it sort mm -hmm. of as word word kind of filtered out and it became public, like you mentioned. Um, and one of the things uh, interest there's an interesting story. And I, if you can Google it, I suppose uh, the, the the famous Blackbird. Um, uh, ground speed check story uh, one of the pilots uh, tells about uh, how all of these different pilots on the uh, the uh, the aviation net uh, the uh, air traffic control net uh, they kind of say oh I like a ground speed check which is to how fast am I going and and yeah and they it's each level is bragging about how fast I'm going faster than everybody else until finally the blackbird pilot says uh, I'll take a ground speed check too and he's going you know Mach three uh, over North America uh, it's a fun mm -hmm. it's a funny story if you get a chance to google it there's and going that fast is uh poses some interesting challenges not just mechanically but like in terms of navigation because you can't rely on towns or rivers to navigate by in pre GPS days, you'd have they they would go so fast that like towns and rivers would just blur past them. Right, and they're so and, high as well. Yeah, and so they'd have to use things like the Grand Canyon or the Great Lakes to navigate by. Uh, they also found in scrambling some of these things to do intercepts that intercepts when you're going Mach three or better are just really hard because you're going to zoom past the target. Um, right. And it can kind of be a goose chase. Um, so the SR-71 Blackbird was one of the spinoff versions of the Oxcart, but it wasn't the only one. They also um, developed drone versions of the uh, Oxcart as well, because they had this problem like Francis Gary Powers, <coughs> they who got shot down by the Soviets. Various pilots in the Oxcart uh, got shot down by the Chinese. And the presidents decided we don't want to – I mean, each one of these causes a diplomatic incident, and we don't like sending pilots to their deaths. And so um, we want to find a way to do this reconnaissance without risking human life. And so this led to a drone version of the ox cart. And this was – it was new to adapt the ox cart in that way and have a drone that could fly that high and fast. But drone technology actually was not new. Uh, drone technology dated back to World War II. And in fact, a lot of people don't know this, but President John F. Kennedy's older brother, uh, Joseph Kennedy Jr., who was originally the one the family had put their political ambitions in. They, Joe Sr. wanted Joe Jr. to become president. Um, he was killed during a drone accident in World War II, testing early drone technology. So um, that's one spinoff program of the Oxcart, the Oxcart version of a drone, which was then used. 
and they were stealth drones. Uh, people don't realize it, but stealth technology actually goes back to World War II also uh, when early radar reflective materials started to be used. And those were also built into the ox cart and into later programs um, that were developed at Area 51, including the F-117 uh, stealth fighter that was developed in the 1970s. So if you wonder, like, where did we get the stealth fighter? It came from Area 51. And in fact, I mean, that was that's a, a great example of stuff that was developed in secret that didn't get revealed until much later. I mean, the it was yeah. uh, the first Gulf War, I think, that the stealth fighter really had its public debut. Um, mm -hmm. Although I think maybe there was a – it was used in Panama during the Manuel Noriega uh, problem as well. It might have been, yeah. Uh, but uh, regardless, it was developed much earlier and then uh, publicly revealed. And if if such things were happening then, we can presume that perhaps there's still – secret they're, planes they're doing something better now <laughs> right yeah this, the blackbird has been retired this you know something else has got to be up there flying around doing the things that we're that we're talking about because you can't do it all from satellite i mean there's there are issues why a plane is better than say a satellite and other uh other uh types of reconnaissance and uh, surveillance um so uh the aurora is one i think i've heard and it's rumored yeah, yeah. and um and and like you say because they often Although with GPS now, they, they can have satellite navigation, but they still often, because they're so fast, they fly over vast areas very quickly. And so you'll sometimes hear stories of uh, sightings of very fast, very high craft, yeah. that, that which kind of intersects with UFO uh, lore. Well, and in fact, um, I, two, two, two points to make about that. Uh, one of the great stories in Annie Jacobson's book is about a pilot who was based out of Area 51 and his his general lived in Washington. And so they're in Nevada, which is in the mountain time zone. It's it's way over across America from Washington, D.C. Um, but his wife lived he lived in Washington, D.C., which is where his wife was. And he would get lonely on the weekends. And so he would say, hey, to this pilot, take me home. And they'd hop in an ox cart and fly back to Washington at Mach 3. They'd refuel over Arkansas and they'd be in Washington that, you know, just a little bit later that night. He'd spend the weekend with his wife and come back on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about misusing government assets. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, But in terms of the UFO connection, it looks like – so when they were developing these new weapon systems, both the U-2 and the Oxcart – um, there was a spike in UFO reports around Area 51. Duh. <laughs> um, well, in particular, that happened with the ox cart because so you know how at sunset, because of the curvature of the earth, it gets dark on the surface of the earth. But you look up in the sky and you see these brilliant clouds, you know, lit up in the sunset because the because of the angle, the sun is still hitting those clouds even though the ground is now in shadow. Yes. Well, so what would happen is you'd have pilots of ordinary commercial planes up in the air, and they look way up higher than they are at sunset and see the sun reflecting on the silver underbelly and wings of the ox cart. And it looks like a plane, or it looks like a bright light flying much higher than any known aircraft at speeds much greater than any known aircraft. 
And of course, it would be very easy to mistake an ox cart at sunset for a UFO in that circumstance. Right. UFO in the sense of alien of space. alien alien yeah, because yeah. it certainly is on a unidentified flying object uh was and they and the air force and cia wanted to keep it that way <laughs> so what else did they do at area 51 that we know of or that it's been speculated well, one thing that we know happened they have reverse engineered craft there but not alien craft um not space the, alien <laughs> yeah in, in the 1950s, uh, there was a problem that we and other Western governments were having in conflict with the Soviet Union um, and its allies because they at the time had the MiG fighter. And the MiG fighter was kind of one of the linchpins of their military, of their air forces. And MiGs could in some ways outperform our aircraft. And like during the Vietnam War, we were losing a lot of pilots yeah. in combat with MiGs. Yeah. And so there was a priority put on how can we how can we deal with these MiGs? Well, the Israelis uh, contacted a, a pilot in Iraq. Iraq was one of the Soviet Union's allies. They had MiG fighters in their air force, and they contacted an Iraqi uh, MiG pilot who was unhappy with his situation in part because he was an Assyrian Christian and was subject to Muslim harassment and so forth in Iraq, and he didn't like that. And they offered him a bunch of money and said, we'll get you and your family out of Iraq and into safety in the West if you'll steal a MiG for us. And he did. He agreed. So they got his family out. He, and when he was assigned to fly a MiG, he took it into Israeli airspace, um, maybe even further, if I remember right, and turned it over to the Israeli uh, uh, intelligence services. And so they then analyzed it, but there was a limit to what they could do with it. And so they offered it to the United States and the U.S. government took it to Area 51, where they called it the donut because it has this kind of circular uh the intake in the place, front. yeah. Intake in the front yeah. where the propeller would be on a propeller-driven plane, um, and uh, and so they reverse engineered the MiG fighter there. They took it apart, put it back together, tested it against our aircraft, and figured out uh, how it all worked, um, which then improved uh, U.S. Um, uh, survivability for pilots in MiG combat. We also know they did other things. The uh, Soviet Union, of course, had their own satellites and and was aware of Area 51. And so um, the the guys at Area 51, it's, you know, you had this group of people who were military officers, civilian scientists, and civilian engineers. And they, they were, and, and given the time period, they were all men. It was kind of a boys club out there. And they would get up to hijinks. It was the middle of the desert. They didn't get good TV reception at night. So they'd hang out and Get in trouble. You know, smoke, <laughs> smoke and drink and eat burgers and yeah. get in trouble. Um, some of them would like hot wire jeeps so that the first person to drive it gives gets an electric shock from the steering wheel. Um, <clears throat> things like that. Um, but uh, they would also play games with the Soviets. So um, like they knew when the Soviet satellites were coming over. And so they put all of the real aircraft away. And during the satellite overpass 
And then they would like make these outlines of bizarre planes, you know, things that wouldn't really work. Uh, and then they would use portable heaters to simulate engines. So from the satellite taking an infrared photo, it would look like that's some kind of really weird aircraft with hot engines. <laughs> <laughs> I could just picture the guys in Moscow. I don't know what this is. We've got to find yeah. it. <laughs> that's awesome. Now, the, the fact is, is we, we, we kind of like we know that Area 51 um uh, it's been it's been acknowledged, right? I mean, the government has finally acknowledged that there's that there's this place out there. Right. Now, that happened way recently, though. That only happened in like 2013. And Area 51 had been part of the public consciousness since 1989. Um, I mean, a few people had known about it before then. But in 1989, there was a guy named Bob Lazar who apparently was an employee at Area 51, who contacted a reporter in Las Vegas named George Knapp, who's one of the coasts, hosts of Coast to Coast AM. And, um, and he, B Bob Lazar, claimed that they were reverse engineering a flying saucer at Area 51, and it was powered by Element 115, which at the time had not been discovered. And in a future show, I want to talk all about Bob Lazar, but um, for our present purposes, he and George Knapp were the ones who basically initially popularized Area 51 and made it a household word. It was through their efforts and and George Knapp's journalism that this really broke out, and subsequently, there's with the declassification of these various programs and with various Freedom of Information Act requests that have been filed. Finally, in 2013, the uh, the CIA acknowledged the existence of Area 51. And, what people, you know, in the age of YouTube and Facebook and social media, there are pictures, uh, distant pictures yeah. of of. Then you can go on to Google Maps. Actually, it's fun if you go into Google Maps. You can see something, but they've actually got some of it kind of blurred out. I think it is at least the last time I checked yeah. uh, there. So uh, th there is some of that going on. Um, yeah, there's also there are photos taken from uh, mountains nearby Area 51, but those tend to be out of date because they've progressively claimed more and more land around the base to keep people from getting images of it. Um, they, uh, there are also satellite photos, uh, some of them from like the Soviets, um, that you can see these days you want to be very careful. This, you don't want uh, people, it treated as kind of a tourist site, but you can't get too close <laughs> because, um, you'll be intercepted by these guys wearing camouflage known as the camo dudes. And the signage around the area warns that the use of lethal force is authorized. Um, I saw one video on YouTube a while back uh, that had um, some guys trying to come up the back entrance of Area 51. And they were on motorcycles and they were stopped and they could see like snipers wearing camouflage, hiding in the rocks up on the hills and stuff. So uh, so you want to be really careful. Uh, the way most people who get in get in is because they're employees. Some of them are driven in by buses. Others are flown in from Las Vegas on unmarked airplanes by a special airline that is nicknamed Janet Airlines. 
And uh, you can, if you go on Wikipedia and look up Janet Airlines, you can see pictures of these unmarked planes. They look just like a regular plane. They got like a nice broad stripe down the side, but no company logo. Yeah, I, I read an article about the about that uh, a few years ago, and it's fascinating, this secret um, paragovernmental um, airline. Contractor service, yeah. So Janet, it was apparently an acronym for for various things. People come up with various things. But one is a, just another non-existent terminal or a joint air network for employee transportation. Or you pick you pick your, your, your acronym yeah. that you want. Uh, but yeah, Janet's it, just there to be helpful, <laughs> which is I wonder if that's where the good place take, gets it. Take you to a good place. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, we, you know, what well, we can quickly kind of go through the, the, the faith perspective, the recent perspective. Uh, yeah, because I mean, on a faith perspective, Area 51, what do we have to say about that? There's there's not a lot. Um, obviously, the church's just war princi- principles apply to. Uh, the development of aircraft and weapon systems that are used for military purposes, but that doesn't tell you a whole lot about an individual craft or system. Um, if you believe that aliens or their craft are housed there, well, then that raises a bunch of interesting questions about aliens and how they relate to us and do they have souls and what has God revealed to them and all that stuff. But that's material we'll talk about in another show. Um from a reason perspective, if we have alien craft, Area 51 would be a logical place to study them. Um, so if you if you buy that, you know, alien advanced alien craft have have crashed on Earth, despite being advanced, um, then it's reasonable to suppose that we would have them and have studied them here. Um, but that's you know, that's that's a big if. Um we don't have good verifiable information, uh, you know, um, that that kind of activity is happening there. Um, but we do have reasonable alternative explanations for some of the uh, UFO reports connected with Area 51, like the ox cart at evening back in the 60s. It really would look like a super performing glowing light in the sky. Right. Which would explain why um, the Blackbird was then uh, matte black and was not reflective at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, bottom line, Area 51 is a real military site where they really do develop secret craft and weapons. But we don't at this point have any good evidence that there's anything extra extraterrestrial there. Well, let me add the one one little extra bit is um, if we did have ET uh, extraterrestrial craft that we were examining – Area 51 would be a good uh, uh, decoy for the real These secret days. site. <laughs> These days, <laughs> exactly. Yes. So there might yeah. actually be a real secret site that isn't really uh, uh, known out there uh, that they're and redirecting a- us to Area 51. Actually, actually, that's that is out there in the UFO literature. There are claims that originally. Uh, it, the extraterrestrial stuff was stored at Groom Lake, and then it was moved to an adjacent part of the same general area called S-4. And then there are other claims that it's located at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in um, in Ohio, and also that it's been transferred to who knows where, <laughs> but that it's no longer there because there, there are too many eyes on Area 51 now. <laughs> By the way, I wanted to note one other thing about Annie Jacobson's book. Um it's a very good book. 
by all means, check it out. It's going to be, as far as I can tell, it's the current definitive treatment of Area 51 and what happened there. But there is one issue that I should mention. Um, she uh, was told by one of her sources, and she doesn't name the source in the book. He is mentioned in the book by name, but she doesn't say this is the guy. Uh, he's subsequently been identified. His name, if I recall correctly, is Andrew O'Neill. Um, but there's a link to who he is in the show notes. Um, she was told by an engineer who did work at Area 51 that based on what he was told, the Roswell craft was taken to Area 51, but it was not extraterrestrial. Instead, it was... Um, sent over by Joseph Stalin to in to penetrate American airspace using or with on board people who were deformed young people uh, that had been experimented upon by the Nazi scientist Joseph Mengele. So this is like right after World War II. World War II ends in 1950. 1945, the Roswell crash occurs in 1947, and the claim is that um, that the Soviets got a hold of some uh, German aerospace engineers who had been working on circular craft and uh, got a hold of these people that Mengele had experimented upon and then put them on the craft and wanted it to penetrate U.S. airspace to create a war of the worlds-like panic so that the American public would freak out thinking we were being invaded by American, being invaded by extraterrestrials, the same way the American public free, allegedly freaked out over the War of the Worlds broadcast in 1938, which is way exaggerated. Um, but because the government clamped down on this, it didn't end up happening. And this is one of the, the panic didn't end up happening. And this is one of the alternative theories that wants to say that something weird but natural happened at Roswell. Um, this aspect of her book has been widely criticized. Um, but I think in her defense, all she's doing is reporting what she's told. Right. Um, so... You know, it, it, this one particular story is kind of hard to believe, but most of what's in her book is very credible. And so I'd recommend that. Okay. Well, that's that's a, that, that, that makes a, a very interesting discussion of this mysterious place, Area 51. Um, and so I, I want to ask the, the listener, you know, what do you think? Do, do you have special knowledge of Area 51 that you'd like to share anonymously? <laughs> have you been there? Have you been Are there? Are you an employee? <laughs> <laughs> we won't reveal your name. Uh, or just what do you think? What do you think of Area 51? What do you think is going on there? What do you think of maybe some of the pop popular culture uh, manifestations of Area 51 and things like Independence Day and other places like that? Um, Maybe some of the rumors are true. That's right. So let us know uh, by going to sqpn.com or the SQPN Facebook page. Find the link to this show and leave us a comment or uh, send us uh, an email to uh, mysterious at sqpn.com. We, we love to take either your uh, a written email or if you want to record, record a voicemail on your phone and use the share function to send it to us, we'd love that. Please um, remember to 
uh, like the post on Facebook, retweet the post on t- uh, Twitter, wherever you see it, to, to give us some comments, to make sure you subscribe to the feed, and to, to make sure you get every episode of the podcast. Um, if you subscribe to it, if you're listening on, on YouTube, uh, click on the bell so you get notifications. And please share the show with your friends, with others who may be interested uh, on social media and other places. Uh, we, we're really looking to grow the audience. And if you can go to iTunes, uh, where uh, you, you, they have the reviews, to leave us a, you know, a five-star review and to tell, tell everyone why you like the show, that helps us to uh, grow the audience and uh, activates the Apple uh, algorithm that, uh, that says, hey, you should, uh, people are interested in this and uh, it shows it to more people. So we'd really appreciate that. And then uh, in the meantime, you can find the links to Annie Jacobson's book and some of the other uh, information on our show notes at sqpn.com, as well as links to our social media and our websites. And so until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us the mysterious world. Thank you very much, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. 